Hi, it's Alyssa Milano, and I'm so excited for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's my unapologetic examination of life, culture, and activism, and it's available for pre-order now, everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. It's hard to believe it's been nearly a quarter century since the impeachment of Bill Clinton. This season of the American Crime Story franchise is focused on that impeachment and the events surrounding it. Our guest this week is Sarah Burgess, the writer and showrunner of Impeachment, American Crime Story. In 1998, after having been swept up into an improbable romance, I was then swept up into the eye of a political, legal, and media maelstrom like we had never seen before. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. It was the first trial of an impeachment of a president since the 1860s. So there really was no precedent. And so the Senate sort of had to sit down and decide for itself, how are we going to conduct this trial? Now that the Senate has fulfilled its constitutional responsibility, bringing this process to a conclusion, I want to say again to the American people how profoundly sorry I am for what I said and did to trigger these events. Sarah, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Before we get into questions about the series, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about you and who you are. You grew up with parents who worked at the Pentagon, right? Yeah, I did. They were both Navy commanders. What's a childhood like that so closely connected to the seat of American power? Was it weird? It is weird. You know, the weirdest thing is, and it kind of made me excited to write this show, is that you know, my mom would go to work every day. She was the only woman in an office of a bunch of uh, other Navy officers. And she would come home and complain about typical like office stuff. So she'd be so annoyed about this guy or whatever, you know? And so I actually always loved how surreal it was in the Pentagon. Her office is like not that far from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's the sort of same weird human failures and annoyances and all that stuff that we all deal with. And I always uh, loved that. It felt very close to home. And then with the stakes being really, and sometimes quite dark in other ways too, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. When I was a little girl and my mom was a fashion designer... And I used to love going to work with her. She had a store and I used to sit in the window of the store and pretend like I was a mannequin. Because I think we all want to sort of emulate what our parents do, right? That's our connection to work and a career. I remember my kids were doing one of those reports about what is what does your mom do for a living? And my son, when he was little, he, he he thought my job was writing mean letters to Donald Trump. They literally printed out writing mean letters to Donald Trump. So it's just always so interesting to me, especially when people have parents that do jobs that are somewhat unconventional, what that must be like for a child. 
when you would stand in the window, would you do that during workout? Like, what was the situation around that? Was it during hours? Yeah, it was like during the summer when I wasn't in school, she would bring me to work in her store and and I would get dressed up and just pretend I was a mannequin. That's great. I love that. I guess maybe you're not at home and it feels, now you're making me think about it now, but to see your parent in this different mode is like so, those memories, just, they just stay with you. You see them interact with people in that way. I remember my mom, she was an officer, so even older enlisted men had to salute her. I remember walking into the Pentagon and seeing that and being struck by it. And my mom was like, not a feminist by any means. I would never make a meal of that or talk about it, but was, it was, that was like a very, I still saw that happen. And it was like a kind of crazy thing to see. Do you think that shaped how you looked at men or the dynamic between a man and a woman? To see my mom have this role that commanded respect that women don't usually get. I think that it's complicated. I think it may have given me a sense that there's some, the the military is so, this is a stupid word to use, regimented. It gave me a sense that there is some order that people follow, even outside of their own biases, but you could still see those biases operating and see even, even when they were, of course, unacknowledged, you know, I guess that's a good question. Yeah. You started your career as a playwright and had great success, especially with your play Dry Powder, which starred John Krasinski and Claire Danes, two of my favorites. Tell us about the play. Dry Powder was my first play got really interested in private equity firms a few years ago and wrote this, what I thought was a very dry play about. I think Dry Powder is fast. It's mean. The comedy of it was always the, the reason to write it. Dry Powder is New York private equity firm that is arguably going through the worst week of its life. The relationships between the, th- the three of them, but in particular Jenny and Seth, are are very funny. There is this love-hate relationship where they endure each other, but they also enjoy the fight with each other. They've met their match intellectually and in this firm in particular. About a leveraged buyout, like a company taking over another company. It was like, I loved going around New York and talking about it because it sounded so incredibly boring and there's nothing about it that hooks you. But somehow it just ended up being produced to the public. I, and that was my first professional experience as a writer. And I think theater really teaches you to have it teaches you to have a backbone. It teaches, it hardens you, I think, when it comes to like putting that into the world. Claire and John were wonderful, as was uh, Hank Azaria and Sanjit De Silva, who were in that play. It was a great first experience for me. Did you realize how incredibly lucky you were to have that cast in your first experience? I mean, that's like, wow. Yeah, that should have been the first thing I said. It was a really weird experience for first play because first of all it was directed by Tommy Kale who directed Hamilton this is when Hamilton was doing his Broadway transfer it was like really the height of, of, of that show becoming the phenomenon it's become and I felt so fortunate to have actors like John and Claire and Hank who have done so much that I admire have done so many have so many different sort of things they can be doing to lend their time and I had a wonderful experience working for them I felt very lucky yeah I started in the theater too and I think it gave me a real good foundation of, first of all, that no matter how or where you were performing, that it is artistry. And I think theater is really great for that. I did a, a Wendy Wasserstein one act at EST, and I did I did a show that Andre Gregory directed where I played a test tube baby that lived behind a wall and only ate blue jello. 
true story. And that was at second stage. It's all we're going to talk about now is, is that show. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. And Mary McDonald played my mother, which was really incredible. But I think that theater gives you such a good foundation that I carry with me still to this day. And I'm wondering if the transition for you from writing plays to then writing for television was similar to my experience of going from theater into TV. For me, it felt like a whole bunch of artistic expression was missing once I got to TV. And it felt like nobody was in charge because everyone was in charge. (laughs) Does that make sense? It was like we'd get notes from the studio and from the network. And it was like, what does the director do? Like, it was so confusing to me. So how was your transition from writing plays to writing TV? You're saying in your experience, it was like you have, it's right, you're Andre Gregory, you're like, you're at second stage, you're working on this very specific artistic vision. And not to mention, you have audience coming and giving you that immediate, you're sitting in a room with people and feeling their attention and, and all that. Like, did it make it less, less fulfilling for you? For sure. Not, not, I don't know if I, I mean, I was 10, so I don't know if I knew what fulfilling meant, but I did feel that it was different. And it did feel very, I guess, homogenized. I've had two off-Broadway plays going into a big production with FX. It's American Crime Story. It's a pre-existing franchise. It's Ryan Murphy production with Ryan directing it. It's going to be seen by a wider audience. As you no doubt heard, you get to work in the West Wing as of this morning. You're going to be working right beside the people who run the world. Please be professional. There's a woman I'm very close to in the midst of an affair with the president of the United States. How do I know it's true? Hello? You will lose her as a friend. I've made my peace with that. Are you sure you have enough evidence? My calls with Monica. What I would say, I guess, is like, What's honestly true is I knew I was going into this pre-existing thing. There have been two seasons of American Crime Story before. I also knew that I was interacting with a story that everyone feels that they know. I guess everyone over a certain age. And that that was going to be kind of a lightning rod. And that was already so different from everything I'd experienced. Not to mention working with Monica Lewinsky herself on her own story. So all of that made everything feel so different. I did, of course, drift towards the things that were familiar. I mean, working with actors is always really, um, that is the thing that like, that's a comfort for me. And every playwright says this when they go to television, but that is like, you know, you do, um, that process is enormously creatively fulfilling, I guess I would say. And this is a very large cast with a wonderful cast. And so that was really great. But I think it all felt so different. And I knew that what was so top of mind, I think, telling this real story that a lot of people had a lot of opinions about me choosing to tell and us choosing to tell. It's not only that everyone knows of that story. It's also that everyone has some sort of opinion about that story. You were 
still living in Washington when Bill Clinton was impeached. Is that right? And and what do you remember? What do you remember? Yeah, I was like a preteen when this happened. So I was in like, I think it was going into high school. I honestly only remember like two things. I should say my parents are not like super political. They're like political moderates. So they weren't, unlike a lot of people, they didn't like love the Clintons or despise them. They weren't talking about that all the time. So it wasn't something that was like brought up a ton in my house necessarily. And all I remember is, I do remember seeing the star report in the Washington Post. Like one morning on the way to school, I guess my mom was like giving me a ride somewhere or something. And I remember seeing that, just using that graphic in the newspaper was shocking. It's still shocking, that document. The way that it is written to be, I think, to, to just stick in your mind and to embarrass the, participant, the participants. It's, it feels that way, at least. I obviously don't know that, but that's like the feeling and, and the tone of the writing sometimes. I remember the Star Report in the paper, and I remember Bill Clinton's August 1998 address to the nation when he had to admit the affair. I do remember watching that on TV. And she, I mean, Monica, who I've become friendly with on Twitter, just seems like an incredible person. She's the producer on Impeachment, American Crime Story. How did having this central player in the impeachment working on the show change how you approached it? Was it easier or harder? Having a real person involved is... I've never in my entire um, life gotten notes from one of my characters. Now, obviously, like the character Monica in the show is, is Monica at this, you know, in the late 90s. I felt that I shouldn't get a pass as a producer. I think, first of all, I shouldn't get a pass in general. I think it's important to take responsibility for mistakes. And I've worked hard to work through those. But in particular with the show, there's so many people who've worked hard on this show. And I, I, it was important to me that the credibility of the show be there. And I, I felt that if I was smoothing over and photoshopping essentially my history in that way, that it wasn't right and wouldn't be fair. Like all of us, she's a different person now in some ways. I see the same person who I studied obsessively. And I, I guess I would, say I would never have really wanted, I wouldn't have wanted to do this if Monica were not involved. So... I felt that I, I can't imagine what that situation would be just because it feels, given what the story is, this person was torn apart by the American media. You don't want to be like another media entity doing that to her. It just wouldn't be right. How did it change the story? Monica gave me, she gave me stories that I didn't know. She pushed me on things that I had written too simply or we had written too simply, to be honest. And she also, she talked about how things felt. This is the only person we had who was in that room. And I think she was careful for it to express her lived experience. And she would have me add detail, add content to lines for Beanie that got closer to the truth. Because like any of us, if I wrote something about you, you would you would care about that more than anyone. And I will never forget that experience. It's a writing experience unlike any of my life to be pushed in that way by the real person. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think what's really compelling about this story and the show is that while it really affected an entire country... And and maybe even the entire world, it was also such a deeply personal story of relationships and betrayal. How did you approach the differences between the public story and the private story? That's such a good question. No one's asked me that. And I, I, I love that question because my approach was to really push very far into the like sort of frustrated private lives of Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp, especially, to understand, I think, to try to understand what created this situation. 
the hardest thing to understand is why Linda Tripp would make those tapes. Hence my obsessive focus on Linda in the first few episodes and her frustration and, and, and loneliness. And I think sometimes legitimate resentment about having been jettisoned from the White House. And then to kind of walk in Monica's shoes as she like deals with the mundane, frustrating reality of you can't call the president of the United States. You like he, it's like the late nineties, like you have to sit in your apartment and wait for him to call you to sort of sit in that, um, all the, the, the sort of challenge of that, I think, frankly, to dramatize the abuse of power, not through their actual interactions, which I could only write honestly, which were things, that, which were moments that both people felt enthusiastic about. You know, I wasn't going to change what happened in their interactions, but you feel the power differential and the fact that Monica can't go anywhere. This is a story that it's weird. I know it's a crime story, but it's a story of like women in their homes, which is where we put women, where they end up getting stuck in these situations, where Monica is stuck in this situation because the the power differential between her and Bill Clinton. If you want to make contact with him, all you can do is wait for him to reach out to you. And I got very inspired by that pain. But it makes sense, right? I mean, that logistically is what, hap- what would happen um, and what did happen. And is it different writing a story where so many of the central players are still alive? Like, I could imagine everybody having a different version of the truth. Or did you just focus on Monica's story and you were like, this is going to have to be the anchor because there's everyone has even a different perception of their own truth. We all bring our own baggage to a moment. Yeah. And we can't see ourselves clearly. Like we don't totally know. I think about my own actions in certain days or whatever. I know why I did that, or I might think of it a certain way and it would feel different to another person. I think the goal is to sort of adopt a handful, like four or five perspectives. You you have Linda Tripp, Paula Jones, Monica Lewinsky, and then Bill Clinton is given the girlfriend role in this show, which I don't hate. We meet him through Monica's eyes, and then he becomes a larger character as his life starts to get disrupted. We all bring our baggage to life, and sometimes we do things we shouldn't do. And it was awful what I did. This morning, former President Bill Clinton opening up about his affair with then intern Monica Lewinsky, including when he told his wife about it. I told her exactly what happened, when it happened. I said, I feel terrible about it. I was personally just hurt, and I, I can't believe this. I can't believe you lied. So my goal was just right from those characters' points of view, even when I think those characters are wrong or they're doing pretty amoral things. And as far as them being alive, yeah, it stresses me out. I don't know. At a certain point, you have to accept that you're being as faithful as you can to the real person and telling the story. It is um, a tricky thing to know that it will go out into the world and those people will see it. But that, of course, started with Monica. And I think her reading my scripts and giving me notes on that, I think, did give me this. That would have been the person that I would have obsessed about the most, I guess I would say. So having her as a partner was enormously helpful. I'm sitting here thinking about like when you got the call that you're going to be writing this and how insurmountable it must have seemed to break this story down in however many episodes and to be faithful to your own artistic expression, but also have to create these characters that are basically already alive (laughs) and to work on the timeline and all of those things that directors and writers work on anyway. Did it feel like totally overwhelming? I think in the moment, it's a good question. The honest answer is like, number one, it still feels insurmountable to me. All you can do is... But you did it. I did do it. You're right. I'm sitting here talking to you having done it. You did it. I'm so, I don't even know you, but I'm so proud of you for doing it. Thank you. 
I mean, I think that like one of these days I'll consider it not insurmountable. I like, I basically like you only accept a job in uh, this kind of job, I should say. I only accepted it. I only agreed to do it and started on it when I felt connected to a part of the story and felt like I had a way to tell it that I knew I would be in some way emotionally involved in, which is messy. I got very, I did something kind of, um, there was a, a bit of a risk in my obsession with this friendship between Linda and Monica as the way into the story. People turn on the show and then what do you expect? Maybe you might expect Ken Starr to be like plotting in his um, in his OIC office. Basically, you might expect a story kind of about the men, to be honest with you. And I was really... Because that's how it was pitched in the 90s, right? Bill Clinton versus Ken Starr. I think once I felt connected to this weird friendship and this awful thing that happened. And like what on earth would make Linda Tripp commit a betrayal of that order? Then it became, then you flip into getting obsessed with it. And so then it just, as always happens, then it just takes control of you and it takes control of itself. And it becomes what it became with me, like leaning on sort of my producers and, and Ryan and Monica Lewinsky to like, to shape it, you know? It was definitely daunting. Do you have these moments when you're writing where, like I, I watercolor paint and there's always this point where I'm looking at the painting and I'm like, I should stop now. And I can't stop. And I just keep going and obsessing. Is it the same for writing? Like, do you have this? I know with my book, which is a book of essays, there were nights that I just obsessed over it. And it was very hard to figure out like when it was ready to go. And I'm wondering if writing TV is the same feeling. Yeah, I think that I would obsessively rewrite certainly pieces of this show and moments and pieces of dialogue or things, certain things that I, that I, I would rewrite. And I, I'm talking about like phrases, like prepositional phrases. The sound of something is very important to me, maybe too important. I'm too obsessed with that. Meaning words coming out of someone's mouth? Yeah. It's like la- I'm language oriented. I would be very like fixated on the rhythm of a line at times. And I, your watercolor, your watercoloring sort of situation I relate to, I guess is what I would say. I have moments like that where it's obsessing over a phrase, the way something sounds. There's obviously just a ton of stuff you just have to, to deal with revising for a whole host of other reasons. So there's also part of this, of course, is like the the time pressure and production realities and all of that stuff. The train starts catching up with you basically as you know as you're shooting. So that 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 part of it feels a little different. But yes, I would work forever. I'm sure I would just work forever altering certain things I obsess about. And and and, and then you know what happens is like you read your writing from a few years ago or you see your play and like all you can hope is that there's parts of it that make you not want to like walk into the ocean. It always could be better. And it's like always a nightmare. This story in particular, there's a whole lot of blame and very few people who are blameless. There's President Clinton, of course, whose actions would have ended up with him, I don't know, fired and sued in most corporate jobs today. But lots of other people did terrible things. Also, like privately and politically before, during and after the impeachment. Did you just come away disgusted with everybody? Do you need to find something likable and redeemable about your characters? It's like all I've been thinking about because I, I'm, I'm mindful of having written a show that I think aside from Monica Lewinsky and Paula Jones, who are truly, who are just put into horrible situations through, for the most part, like through actions, like they simply did not take. And I think it's the fact, just the facts on the ground for Paula Jones and Monica are, would make any honest person just truly feel for them. Like that aside, those two aside, like you want, it's a show where you 
are not supposed to particular, particularly like anybody. I think that would just frankly be dishonest. There are so many things about Monica's experience during this time that I had no idea about, and I too had my own opinions about Monica. Um, but you know, she was held in a in a hotel room by the FBI for 12 hours while waiting for her mother to come um, from New York City to DC. And you know, it just when you really, really think about it, she was she was essentially a child, and there was one person who should have been. Um, responsible to yes. not only his family but to the country and um, that didn't happen so much. I don't tend to think I tend to live in a place where I'm very comfortable writing characters like that because I think I get I, I've been thinking a lot about this lately I find some meaning in loving a character who loving a character as the writer who is doing a terrible thing. There's something about that I think really drives me so for me a lot of the show was about understanding trying to understand why I would do this to Monica, as I said before. And as far as Bill Clinton, as you said, like, I think he was in a political ecosystem that created the conditions for this to happen when it wouldn't have happened to a prior president. And I was, I tried, of course, to write him without, without judgment. Do you think you can, with like a person, do you think you can find something likable about someone who you just don't like, or you think that they're a bad person? Like, it's hard to just find a redeemable quality in a person, right? Or are you actually capable of I mean, I guess maybe that's possible. What do you think about that? I think that there are, I think, depending on how that person is entering my orbit, I think that if there's someone that I know is going to be part of my life, that I have to at least have compassion for that person. And also, you know, for characters that I play, too. I have to find something. I have to find the empathy in it, even if it's a totally unlikable character. I have to be able to say this is why and it's trauma or damage or whatever, you know, story I make up for that character in the moment. But this is why this person is how she is. And I, I just think of, I think of so often these these notes that you would get about she just needs to be more likable because I, I produce, too. So receiving those notes about and mostly it's female characters. They'll never be like, you really need to make that dude more likable. It's like nobody, I guarantee you, when if you look at the most anti-hero characters on TV, like House maybe came to mind, who is a bad dude. He did bad things and he was rude and whatever. But I guarantee you the network wasn't like, you know what, he's just not likable. Or, or Dexter. Look at Dexter that went on for eight years. It was about a killer and people were like should i just try to write i'll try to write a female dexter now I'll see what happens see how good that how well that goes for me yeah see what they say because i'm telling you there is i just had it with the, this netflix movie that i did where like the first scene i'm with my sister and and she's gotten clean from being on pills and it's literally like the second scene in the movie and I'm basically giving her shit about leaving her son with his dad. And the director, whom I, I love, and she's a woman, she's awesome. And she came over and she was like, so they just, because it's like the second scene in the movie, they just want to make sure that your character's likable. I was like, this is not a likable conversation, but she's likable. It's so much of, it's so much of what I think the perception of that women need to be, you know, smile more, that whole thing. It's just two different realities. It's living in two different realities. And there's just, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. It, it, it's tough because a lot of it's not conscious. It's just a sort of fundamental fact. And it's complicated for a story like this, which this is a story where if I'm doing a good job, it's an uncomfortable and unpleasant. It, it's a tough 
story. There is like, there's comedy in it. There's a lot of, you know, things get very, um, we all know that it's a surreal and bizarre story. And it's the FBI and federal prosecutors end up inserting themselves in people's lives in ways you would never expect. In order to cooperate and to avoid charges, I would have to make phone calls, monitored phone calls, which they would listen into and record. And I might have to wear a wire and go see people actually in person. The ground completely crumbled in that moment. I felt so much guilt and I was terrified. There's a lot of story to it. Um, at the end, sitting here today, Monica Lewinsky is this thing. Monica is like an incredibly inspiring figure. Every, everything she's done, who she has become, who she is every day, that is like the positive part of the story now. But the story I was telling in the 90s, to do justice to her is, is painful and uncomfortable. And that means there's a lot of unlikable people and, and, and unlikable women. I mean, we really gave her the shitty end of the... I mean, seriously, when I think back at how few even... I feel like even the feminists of that day and how it just... What a tragedy and what an incredible woman to be able to come out of that with such grace. It's astounding. It really is. So what lessons should we have taken as a nation from the Clinton impeachment? And do you think that we've learned those lessons? A lesson that has been, I think, a little bit spoken about right over the past few years, and as we talked about around, I think, recent reexaminations of how we treated Britney Spears, is the shameless delight, people totally abandoning themselves to absolute delight in the complete destruction of a young woman who's like obviously suffering, or the tearing apart of Monica is was, it was so long. It was like over a year that people were pretending to be tired of it, and yet we're like stopping everything to consume all these jokes and all these personal details and she didn't really have much of a constituency. So that is obviously a lesson, I think, is a moral, there's a moral lesson in that. And I don't know where we go from here. I'm curious, do you think that if this were to happen today with the president, do you think things would be significantly different for a young woman who's in Monica's situation? Do you feel much has changed regarding some of that? Like, How do you feel like it would be different today? I mean, I don't know. I think post Me Too movement, I do think that we're seeing a reckoning of abuses of power. But I also think they've probably gotten a lot better at, at hiding shit and covering up shit and paying people off and sending them to Australia in the middle of a election. I think that that we have um we have a long way to go. And I think that the next decade is really going to tell us if this social experiment of me too and holding people accountable for their actions really means something or if we're just going to go back to, you know, I I fear that the more freedom and the more we come together as women and we gather, great things happen when women gather. I think the more that we find our power in the collective pain of all of this, I think we're going to start seeing more and more oppressive bills pop up on a state level where they're trying to control our bodies. I think we're going to see more voter suppression of women of color. I think that this is like the patriarchy's last gasp 
of air before, I mean, I'm hopeful that this is the last, but you know, my gravestone issue is trying to get women into the Constitution. We don't even have protections in the American Constitution. In the U.S. Constitution, the only protection we have is the right to vote. So we are considered less than. And so I don't know if this happens. We can't even get the Violence Against Women reauthorization bill passed in the Senate. I think we've come so far, but I also think that there are very powerful white dudes who are calling the shots. I mean, Matt Gates, for fuck's sake. This fucking guy accused of sex trafficking a minor. George, good morning. The political future for Congressman Matt Gates really hanging in the balance here as we learn more details about the scope of the investigation. Not only has it been going on for months, we are told that it stretches beyond Florida and that multiple witnesses have already been interviewed. And he still has his commission appointments in the U.S. Congress? Give me a fucking break. Yeah, so I, sorry, we've come a long way and yet we have not. No, I, I agree with you. And it's what do you do? And, and, and on top of all of that, enabling a lot of that is I think our own unconscious, our own unconscious reactions to things, men and women, right? Who I think can internalize these ideas, internalize the ways that certain people are entitled to certain behavior and certain people aren't. And we just live by a different set of rules at, at times. And as far as I think the most hopeful thing is to sit in that reality. And, and I think everything you say, I, I, uh, and to face it as, as, as you are so direct, really inspiring, because that's the most hopeful thing there is, is to face it. Face it and then try to fix it, because it's the allowing it to just happen, especially with I have a beautiful little girl. And to not fight for her, just, just I can't even wrap my head around it. How do you think the Clinton impeachment altered the two Donald Trump impeachments? Do you think that those impeachments affected the way you told this story, the Trump impeachments, and also how the public perceives it and understands it? I think a few things about that. I think it's hard to say before Clinton, no elected president had ever been impeached. It was Andrew Johnson, this drunk racist who took over for literally Lincoln when Lincoln was killed. He took over, horrible president, eventually was impeached, never even won. He wasn't even elected to be president. So for Clinton to be impeached, technically it was like a seismic event. And yet there's this weird anticlimax about it that was similar to, I think, some of what we felt in the Senate, which is like the president's party is probably not going to impeach him. They don't have the votes. Of course, at the time in the 90s, many people saw Clinton's impeachment as completely unjust. They believed that the the counts were, didn't it all rise to, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors. There's a lot of legal discussion about legal argument about that. People tend to fall on the sides of their parties. Um, which is another thing that's resonant with the Trump era. I think there's something about the Bill Clinton impeachment. And I, I will say, frankly, I think the feeling of a lack of accountability, even for, a, I, I fully agree, there was a, sort of a conspiracy to entrap Clinton and have him perjure himself. I do think that there's a feeling that this story is a bit of an origin story for today and for this era, and that the the political tribalism besides that the, like the, there was oh, oh, people cared about the personalities of the, the man that they hated that they cared about the man they hated or the man they despised that felt resonant for today would trump have been impeached if not for clinton i mean it seems like probably right it's fucking donald trump but the reasons for trump's impeachment seemed obviously far weightier in a sort of like threat to the republic way which is you know that's like the classic legal argument those two things I don't know. I th There is some kind of rhyme between them, though. And I think all the time, I guess I should say, I'm sorry to ramble to this answer. If Bill Clinton had been had perhaps stated what happened, come forward, 
admitted that something happened between he and Monica, it would have prevented, it would have prevented a lot of pain. It would have prevented a lot of the sort of legal issues that arose. I completely understand writing the character and on a human level, why a politician would not do that. But there's, there's something about that rocky nightmarish year for America that felt like it, it just felt like a mess. And it felt people were talking past each other in a way that is familiar today. And, but obviously it was in many ways, a very different tone. I think it's got so, so interesting that it had been 130 years since the last presidential impeachment. And now everyone who is in their mid-20s or older has lived through three. Do you think that's just symptomatic of a change in our politics or is it demand for accountability or is it that we're just getting more clever in how we find out about these things? Impeachment doesn't feel like accountability. Former President Donald Trump tonight declared not guilty of the impeachment charge. He incited insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. He is hereby acquitted of the charge in said article. Seven Republican senators voting with Democrats to convict, 57 to 43. The most bipartisan Senate impeachment vote in history, but far short of the two-thirds majority needed to convict. You know, I mean, Bill Clinton was impeached and then Hillary Clinton, um, became a senator very soon after and then ran for president. And that's Hillary is not Bill, obviously going to be very clear about that. But I don't think the impeachment of Bill Clinton felt like really accountability. And I don't think that it held the later president accountable either, really. Don't you agree? I think it feels like it's drained of meaning, to be honest, to some degree, when it's a condition like Clinton's or Trump's was when the Senate is just absolutely not going to convict. Do you agree with that? It starts to just feel like a formality and it's not even a significant news event in some ways. Sadly, yeah. Yeah, I do totally agree with it. Talk about theater. When I was in the room for Trump's second impeachment, nope, first impeachment, and it felt, I don't know, I just, I remember looking at Adam Schiff thinking like, this is the greatest one-man show I've ever seen in theater. Like, seriously, I'm like, how is he off book? How is he doing this? But I was saddened that we didn't do more. I think the state of U.S. government and, and our politics makes me really sad. And I'm sad because, not because of the institutions or anything like that, but I'm sad for the American people who have suffered a lot because of greed. And I think because everyone's looking for their happily ever after, it's really hard to find it now in this country because we don't even pay people a minimum or a livable wage. We don't even take care of their health. It's a fight. Everything's a fight. And we should just be taking care of people. No, I, I totally agree. I, I think it's very well said. And it's, it's odd to write a story in living in the 90s. It wasn't that long ago, but it was, there was a real tone of corporate enthusiasm and optimism. And especially you know, the, the, the early 90s with like the first baby boomer president stepping in and this like fresh generational change. It's, very, it's disorienting to write about that and then sort of be living in our current, you know, reality. And it's obviously like, it's never cynicism or complete pessimism is actually how I feel, though I may sound that way sometimes. It's just, it feels hopeful to just be honest about it, which I, I so admire about you, as you say, work to, fight, work to fix them, you know? Let's finish this on a hopeful note. What gives you hope, Sarah? Oh, that's a good question. What I'm still processing, what gives me an enormous amount of hope is the past couple of years that I spent with Monica Lewinsky, because this is a story that I heard about when I was a kid. I thought I knew the whole story. I thought this person's life has been utterly destroyed. And then the person who I met 
was so strong. I still remember the last time I saw her. I saw her about a month ago at like our opening event. It was, I just spent a little bit of time sitting with her and, and one of her oldest friends, Kat, and talking with her. What Monica experienced and who, who she was then, the strength that she displayed at that time and who she's become today, to be sort of crushed by every side of our political spectrum and, and, and the media and just generally agreed upon as a joke by your whole country. And then to now make yourself into a leader who's so funny and warm, who emailed me the day of the premiere. I get an email from Monica, just a private email to me. It's like, how are you? How are you feeling? How are you doing? And we don't email like that, like constantly or whatever. This is a kind, warm, present, and strong person. So for me, there's no excuse for, you know, I can feel any frustrations throughout my day or obviously political concerns and cultural concerns can overwhelm me. All, all these different things, but I just want just to rephrase that. I think for me, whatever I, I deal with or whatever sort of pain I experience or Sorry, let me repeat that again. I want to make sure to get this right because it's about her. For Monica to make herself into who she's become, as bad as, as any of us may feel on a given day, I think you can only really have, you, you can only feel real, sincere hope and optimism to see that a single life can take all of those turns and produce the person who, who is produced. Uh, it's been one of the most inspiring things in my life to, to get to know her and to work with her on this. Sarah Burgess, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much, Alyssa. It's really great talking to you. At the age of 22, I fell in love with my boss. And at the age of 24, I learned the devastating consequences. Can I see a show of hands of anyone here who didn't make a mistake or do something they regretted at 22? Yep, that's what I thought. <laughs> So like me, at 22, a few of you may have also taken wrong turns and fallen in love with the wrong person, maybe even your boss. Unlike me, though, your boss probably wasn't the president of the United States of America. Of course, life is full of surprises. Not a day goes by that I'm not reminded of my mistake. And I regret that mistake deeply. We give immense power to the people we elect. They affect every part of our lives, from how much money we make to whether or not we have control over our own bodies. For presidents, this is even more true. They are the most powerful person in the world and represent the United States to every person in the world. This is why it's so important that we elect people of good character to office, and especially to the presidency. It's also why it's so important that we hold elected officials to a higher standard and make sure they are held accountable when they fail to meet that standard. But impeachment can't simply become a political tool. In the history of our nation, three presidents have been impeached, one of them twice. None of those impeachments were free of political maneuvering, although the last two especially were for gross misconduct, which deserved removal from office. It can't become a tool to thwart the will of the voters. We must not let it corrupt an already broken system. Impeachment should be rare, and it should be nonpartisan. If it's not... It will lose all of its value and will be worse off because of it. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs>